Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Pulitzer Prize winning author Robert Olin Butler on the latest novel in his Christopher Marlowe Cobb series, Paris in the Dark. Robert Olin Butler is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain and 16 other novels, including Hell, A Small Hotel, Perfume River and the Christopher Marlowe Cobb series. He is also the author of six short story collections and a book on the creative process, From Where You Dream. He has twice won a National Magazine Award in Fiction and received the 2013 F. Scott Fitzgerald Award for Outstanding Achievement in American Literature. He teaches creative writing at Florida State University and today we're going to be talking about Paris in the Dark, which is the fourth in that Christopher Marlowe Cobb series. Robert, welcome to Little Atoms. I am delighted to be here. Tell us who Christopher Marlowe Cobb is. Uh, Christopher Marlowe Cobb is an uh, American war correspondent in an era when they were rock stars. He's um, covering, in, uh, in this case, he's into World War One. The first Cobb novel began in April of 1914, before the First World War began. And he covered there the uh, invasion of Mexico by the United States, which is passed under, even for Americans, our history a little bit. Woodrow Wilson uh, didn't like the uh, the general who was running Mexico at the time, and he wanted to protect American oil interests. Well, sounds very familiar. And so we invaded. And Cobb goes in there to cover the war for a Chicago newspaper, ends up being recruited into the American Secret Service. And the series has progressed now until, in this case, it's the fall of 1915. And so he has got a dual role. He's a war correspondent. He is also a spy. And um, who he really is and who he figures himself out to be is one of the ongoing yearnings of my central character. Well, I mentioned this is the fourth book, and you've already mm. mentioned the first one. Just just recap on some of the uh, exploits he gets up to in the second and third one as well. Well, the second and third one is called The Star of Istanbul and begins on the uh, on uh, the Lusitania, and that takes him into uh, Turkey and um, in that era. And in the third is called The Empire of Night. In that one, uh, he grew up absent a father, but his mother was a famous is a famous uh, American stage actress, and um, she's involved in heavily in the plot of Empire of Night. And he has a gift for language and, and goes undercover, in fact, into Germany uh, in that novel. So, Yeah, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about his, his mother. So she's 
obviously mentioned in this book, but isn't involved yeah. in the plot as much as the last she, one. Um, she's a famous stage actress, as you said. She's also herself a spy. I wanted to talk something about his background growing up in the theatre and, and how that sort of affected him. Well, um, the kind of ongoing motif of role-playing and identity is, is an important one for him. And honestly, for me, Cobb himself is a... In spite of the fact that these are books in an overtly recognizable genre, although a mixed one, the American edition even has a subtitle of Christopher Marlowe Cobb Thriller. And it's a thriller, but it's, it's, it's a historical espionage thriller at that. But my underpinnings are the literary genre having won a Pulitzer Prize, for example. And um, my sense of, of these books is that they are indeed, though I draw heavily on on some of the conventions and play with them ironically, they are sort of in the, in the manner of your wonderful Graham Greene and his entertainments and Stambul Train and the Honorary Consul and, and the Quiet American and some other, several others. Those books are every bit as literary as his so-called literary books. These books feel that way, too. And, and actually, your question touches upon the way in which I see them as literary. Because as an art form, fiction, it's a temporal art form. It exists in time. And it's about human beings and their feelings. I mean, those are elements that are as, as integral to fiction as movement is to dance and form and color are in painting. And um, any Buddhist will tell you, and it's one of the great truths of their religion, that as human beings with feelings on planet Earth, you can't exist for 30 seconds of time without desiring something. And my favorite word in this regard is, is yearning. And this is, I teach this, I teach creative writing in the States and in graduate programs have for more than three decades. And those who come to me trying to be literary writers, I have to remind them that that's what this art form is about. That plot, for example, is simply yearning, challenged, and thwarted. And I have a kind of unified field theory of yearning for literary work. If you dig deep enough into any work of literary fiction, that central character's yearning, the thing that's driving the plot forward, if that plot's linear or convoluted, whatever it is, the thing that's driving that plot in almost all literary books is that the character yearns for a self yearns for an identity, yearns for a place in the universe. And indeed, that's true because it's, it's, it's what life is about. And literature tries to go down to the essence of the human condition. And all of us, every morning we wake up and we look in the mirror, and whether it's a real mirror or a virtual one, whether we realize we're looking or we're, we're doing it unawares, we look in the mirror and we go, who the hell are you? It's the great who the hell am I that drives all of us in our days, all the flashpoints of culture, race, gender, religion, ethnicity, politics, nationality, sexual preference, whatever. Take a half step back from them and they all they are all prefabricated answers for that question. So your question goes straight to the heart of of Cobb and the literariness. What he is, is spy, is he an actor, is he a, a war correspondent? He is all these things and trying to figure out how to make those fit together. So you were, you're a Vietnam veteran. I am. You're also a, a reporter, a war correspondent, had some work with intelligence services as well. Yes, I was, yeah. How do all of these things feed into the character? Well, that's the other thing, yes. This book is, in some ways, Cobb as a character is, fits the outline of myself than many others. As you said, I was a 
I was a counterintelligence special agent in the army in Vietnam. So I went to war. I was worked in intelligence for almost 15 years. I was an investigative business journalist for 10 of those. I was the editor, 12 of them. I was the editor in chief of a business newspaper, investigative paper in the energy field. This big publishing company, after I worked for them for three years, they gave me a desk and a blank check and said, invent a newspaper for us to come to terms with the mid 70s energy crisis. And uh, and so I was, a you know, and it was an investigative paper and we um, uh, did a lot of serious news. And so all those elements of my own self combined to bring out Cobb. Uh, indeed, I'd go back to Graham Greene again, who once said, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the quote, but for a reason that'll be immediately apparent, he said, all good novelists have bad memories. He says, what you remember comes out as journalism. What you forget goes into the compost of the imagination. And so my compost heap, where my characters come from, reshaping and reforming out of that compost heap that is everything I've ever done in my life. Cobb draws on a lot of stuff that I can look back and say, well, I can see where he's coming from. Those are the places. And so there are famous rock star war correspondents Mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Why the First World War then? Well, uh, go back to Richard Harding Davis. This was a this was a, a major a character who I'm very interested in. He wrote some no- novels in the early 20th century. He, they were even bigger rock stars in the teens of the 20th century because in 1914 and 1918, that period, it's before movies. They, they were just in their infancy. It's totally before drama on broadcast radio. That's still a decade away. And in the United States, there were 2,600 daily newspapers in that era. In fact, the city of New York had 61 daily newspapers. And over 80% of all reading of any kind that was done in America was the reading of newspapers. And without movies and without, you know, uh, radio, but even especially without movies, those war correspondents, reporters of all all kinds, but especially the war correspondents, foreign correspondents, if they had a vivid, and they all did, almost proto-cinematic writing style, they fed a deep human need to be told stories in the most vivid possible way. And so these folks were avidly followed and played an important central kind of role in our day-to-day life in that part of the 20th century. Setting the novel in that time period... What parallels can we make with (laughs) Parallels indeed. Well, let me just give you a little list (laughs) of what was going on in the zeitgeist in 1914 to 1918, all right, with the time of Cobb. Drastic new technologies expanding the capabilities of mass killing and destruction, the appropriate role of America in the world. These are the issues, the ravages of war, waves of immigration, often desperate in motive, the struggle for a viable free press, violent acts of terror, the thrashings of governments under siege, the clash of ideologies, both political and religious, racial oppression, gender repression, dictators, and I'm coming to you straight from America, would-be dictators, gaining and asserting power. Those were the issues of the early 20s. Does that sound familiar yeah, in any way? Yeah. So, in fact, when I'm writing the Christopher Marlowe Cobb books, I am 
writing them and I'm inspired to write them because I am writing as well about our times, about our zeitgeist. So you just mentioned America and its thoughts about its role in the world. You've already mentioned that, you know, just before the First World War, they'd been into Mexico, which obviously is on America's borders. Roughly around this time, they're going to um, Haiti as well. Into the Philippines, mm-hmm. and yes. Uh-huh. And at this moment in time, we're talking about the autumn of 1915 when mm-hmm. this book is set. And as you said, Woodrow Wilson is basically prevaricating about whether or not America should get involved in in the Great War. So remind us what was going on. Well, at that they, time. We are till, still over two years away from entering that war. He was... Um, a highly educated man. He was a, had a doctorate degree and was a professor. In that respect, quite unlike, if indeed, the antithesis of, uh, to quote our, his first Secretary of State who lasted about six months, I won't, I won't quote the adjective, which begins with an F, that, but he, he is something of a moron, we, we must admit. But beyond that, Woodrow Wilson, not a moron, but he was the intellectual version. He was, he was an America first isolationist. He was a terrible racist. And yet, as well, uh, very um, keen on overcoming and throwing his weight around to certainly our southern neighbor, Mexico. A guy named Huerta, a general, was the uh, president of uh, Mexico there in, in the spring of 1914. And, and we marched in and, and did our best to overthrow him. And it took a long time before we got into the war. And the other thing to remember there is obviously America has a huge number of German immigrants as well. I mean, how oh, do they yes. decide which side to weigh in on is, you know, is, is one of the questions they must have been dealing with. It was indeed, although the trek through Ellis Island was still, that was a fairly open door at that point. America was still shaping itself up. And indeed, if anybody was looked askance, it wasn't the Germans. It was the, it was the Irish at that point, for whatever bizarre reasons. That has profoundly changed in the last, you know, Certainly, the last few years, but even it's been changing for a while. In a way, it's it happened with the Vietnam War. I think our melting pot got cracked in that war. It was a war that began in un, under dubious rationalizations. Uh, it was the first televised war. It was the first war without front lines that we fought in any serious way. And the immigration flood from from that war was enormous. I think. A lot of Americans were forced to um, try to make that decision that I was talking about before, that my unified field theory of yearning, you know, who am I? And um, a lot of Americans began to redefine, well, who is our own and who is the other? And otherness has been an issue now for going on 50 years in our country. And we're seeing the awful, I think Hegel was probably right, um, the dialectic of history. Um, hard to believe just a couple of years ago, three years ago, we had a, a black president. But the irony, I think what's happened is as soon as Trump won, I went and looked at the numbers and Hillary beat Trump by three and a half million votes in the popular vote. We have this strange electoral college thing that puts a great preferences states you know, we are a United States, at least that's how we began. Obama would have beaten Trump by seven or eight million votes and won the Electoral College handily. So the reality is that the same people who gave us our first black president also gave us Donald Trump because in a binary, you guys have your, you know, your parliamentary government, you're used to coalitions, but in a binary 
two-party republic, there's no such thing as not voting. And those not voters in the Trump-Hillary-Clinton election gave us that man. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Robert Olin Butler. We're talking about his latest novel, Paris in the Dark. And Robert, I want to talk for a while about why Paris. Oh, it's such a sexy, wonderful city, for one thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, why Istanbul? Why why Berlin? You know, it's a wonderful setting. And again, I know Paris really well. Uh, It's coming out of my compost heap. I graduated uh, from my undergraduate years at uh, Northwestern University. And um, my graduation present from my parents was three months in Europe. And uh, I came to London, and then I went to Paris. I had planned to do the rest of Europe. I had these grand plans, but I stayed longer in Paris, and then I just came back to London, and, you know, uh, I love this place. But um, my new time in Paris was important, and, you know, no spoilers, huh? But, but the catacombs are underneath this novel, figuratively and literally. And the catacombs have been lurking in my compost heap and wanting to assert themselves into a novel for a long while. They they do a novel years ago I wrote had some of that in it, but not in not in the way this here. But also Paris was the it was time to get toward the front lines, which I had not done yet in the comp series. And Paris was certainly a good starting point. The American ambulance corps Volunteer Americans who were in in the war were based in Paris, and that early presence of America in the war is a Paris phenomenon. And so, 
uh, for all those reasons, those elements began to combine because America's engagement, other than Cobb being American and some of the characters here and there, but uh, it was time in the fourth book to make take a step toward the front lines and and take a step with Cobb where a broader American presence was beginning to be felt, uh, although in, you know, embryonic form, but there it was. And then Paris was the, the focus point for that. So Cobb is there in his role as a war correspondent, ostensibly to write a story about those exactly. volunteer, American volunteer ambulance men for back home. And then, you know, he gets involved in the other side of his of his role. But in terms of the ambulance corps, what sort of people were doing that? Uh, quite a variety. They were all volunteers. Um, you know, Ernest Hemingway was was uh, one of the drivers, I guess, out in, in Italy. But um, at some point, they were college kids. They were farm boys. There were I'm one of each here in this book. Um, there were American uh, nurses, uh, formally trained you know, hospital people, doctors and nurses who were part of that ambulance corps. It was an interesting cross-section of American society that were working side by side uh, as volunteers in that uh, in that corps. And you mentioned Ernest Hemingway. So as you said, he was, you know, in the ambulance corps, but mm-hmm. in Italy and um, Farewell to Arms, obviously, right, is, is right, set right. in that world. And this book feels very Hemingway. Yeah. You also mentioned Graham Greene, obviously, but... Who else, I wondered, who else is a particular influence on these Cobb novels? In John particular? Buchan uh, was a, a, his spy novels I read long ago, you know, and was influenced by him. Uh, and and Le Carre as well, Jean Le Carre, uh, not from this period, but Buchan is from, from this period as well. And Somerset Mom had a wonderful early uh, spy novel. Ashenden was the character's name. In fact... We just had a rave review in the Wall Street Journal for Paris in the Dark, and they compared the book to the mom novel. As I said, this is obviously a mystery. We don't want to give anything away mm. of the story. And I don't know there are much, some twists and turns. There are some twists and turns, and I don't know how much you can say about this. And I sort of, I mean, I don't know what your opinion on this will be, but what I was taken by the eventual antagonists in this book, they're essentially right. What they're doing, their ideas, and the reason for you know, the plot yeah, of, this, exactly. of this story. Fundamentally, I agreed with them, but obviously yeah. the methods that they're using yeah. are bad. And I wanted to talk about... Nicely you know, finessed. That. Nicely yeah, yeah, finessed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I, you know, so you didn't immediately go, how, how dare you say that thing? People are terrible. <laughs> no. um, so, yeah, let's talk about writing from that sort of angle. Well, that's, I guess that's my compost heap at work and my background in that other genre. I mean, the comp books... All the way through have been, there's been, a, and, and also, so, I mean, I'm not the first one to, to dwell. I mean, look at Green and look at Le Carre, for example. I mean, you know, the, the moral ambiguities are the fascinating thing about wars and about uh, spy work and all of that. I'm, that genre lends itself well to somebody who whose ultimate goal is not just to entertain, but to try to reflect upon and explore in the unique way, and I mean that unique literally, that fiction can do non-analytical, non-thematic, non-idea driven, but senses through the senses in the moment, the, you know, the stuff of life as you experience it, that you thrum to it instead of think about it. That genre of the espionage and thriller connected to that and 
especially in a context of war, the complexities that that reside in potentially and in, in reality in those things is what draws me to this kind of hybrid object that we've got here in the table between us. Because the human condition is complex and self-contradictory and always a challenge. And by the way, the ways in which that era and those forces work on the people within it are really the kind of challenges to the yearning that I identified earlier as part of this kind of what I call my unified field theory of yearning in, in fiction, because those very forces are challenges to those the individuals involved to their yearning to identify who they are. Who am I? Am you know and the decisions I make in my actions and for myself and for my country or for my philosophy or for you know all of that, all that stuff is really done in ardent pursuit of a self, an identity. And so all of that fits potentially seamlessly, organically together, which is, again, another quality of a work of literary fiction. Just one more thing from me, and then I'll get you to, to read a bit of Paris mm -hmm. in the Dark, if you would. Sure, I'd love to. Um, do you know yet what more we can expect from Kit? Ah, I make that decision when I'm, uh, you know, I'm writing another novel now. I wrote a book called Perfume River in the midst of the Cobb books. I'm enjoying moving from Cobb as literary hybrid into entertainment fiction as a way to clear my palate for books that are coming from an even more complicated and not and, and not so anticipatable of form. So um, the book I'm working on now is another in the literary genre, as it were, but I've written, you know, I'm working on my 25th book and then and I started publishing 30, 37 years ago, 36 years ago. You know, they come f frequently enough and I, and on and Perfume River in some ways also published by Newcastle. You know, I've always gotten lovely reviews and a lot of people feel like that's even my best book. And people feel like Paris in the Dark is the best of the cobs and I'm 73 years old. And a lot of writers by my my age have, you know, are fallen silent. But I've got such a good, bad memory that that compost heap is is full of stuff. And there is another, there is another comb, but I don't know where he's going to go next. I don't know yet. Well, we'll look forward to finding out, Robert, if you would uh, read as a... Yeah, let me just start at the beginning here and uh, read up to a point which, uh, given some of my earlier remarks, will seem like a probably an appropriate stopping point. In the dark above Paris, in the deep autumn of 1915, they were always the Newports flying their patterns, like sentries walking a perimeter. The new Svelte Model 11, called Bebe by its pilots, operated above the high-flying Zeppelins, poised to drop on them in a column of searchlights if the Zepps got by the guns at the French forts to the east. On a November night, I sat beneath the Newports at a table outside the Café de la Rotonde. The weather had been unpredictable. It snowed last week, but tonight it was almost mild. It might as well have been April, and that hammering of engines, pistons up above, might as well have been French worker bees going after chestnut blossoms. My drink was a bijou, the greenery taste of the chartreuse fitting right in with the bees in the night, and I was surrounded by people I couldn't actually see, just vague shapes and spots of cigarette flame. But I knew who they were, the assorted male denizens of the left bank, artists and professors, students furloughed for six days from hell, students furloughed for good by a stump of an arm or an empty pants leg, the old, the infirm, the foreigners. 
The conversations that turns hopeful, fearful, or miffed had been low, as if the Zepps would hear us, and I'd sat away from them near the street. I had my own brooding and ranting to do, which I kept to myself. But now a voice rang clearly in the dark. Monsieur, you want, would you like uh, one more bijou? I looked up at the shadow hovering above me. He'd spoken in English, but wallowing the words in his mouth as the French do. He was old enough to have grandsons in the trenches. Thank you, I said. That is just what I need. I'd replied in French. My French was pretty good. My actress mother, who took on my education in all subjects, knew French well from playing Racine and Cornet in her two long triumphant tours of the continent in the mid-90s, and from a bow or two of hers along the way. Before the waiter moved off, I said, Henri, isn't it? Yes, that is me, he said. Have I forgotten you, to my shame? He was speaking French to me now. Ah, no, I said. I heard someone address you. Thank you, he said. I said, I always like to know the name of the man who will help me become more or less drunk. Henri laughed a faintly suppressed laugh. I'm Kit Cobb, I said. Monsieur Cobb, you are American, yes? Yes, I am. You are here, he paused. I grew up in the theater. I knew how to hear subtext. Here meaning Paris, meaning Paris deep into the Great War. His silence said, though your countrymen are not. Then he finished formally, courteously. I am grateful to you. Plenty of us will be here, I said, addressing the thing he'd left unsaid. To fight. The day is coming. He lowered his voice. There are too many professors. I shot him a smile, though I doubted he could see it. He knew his clientele here amidst the University of, of Paris on the left bank, and he knew our American president. I share your distaste, I said, for Professor Wilson. He chuckled, and I could even make out his shrug. But still your countrymen will come, he asked. Yes. I pray it will be in time. So do I. And you, sir, what do you do in Paris? Ah, how to answer that. I was a reporter, a war correspondent, but hobbled thanks to Henri's government and part-time thanks to mine. I was also a spy. So I've been talking to Robert Olin Butler. We've been talking about his latest novel, Paris in the Dark, which is out now in the UK from No Exit Press. Robert, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it's it. It's been a delight. Great to talk to you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.